This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm very excited to have all these brilliant minds on the podcast, all of which have been on the podcast before. So we've got Mike Isretel and Jared Feather in the corner there, uh, or people are listening, so they're they're together on a couch. Um, and we have Eric Helms and Brian Miner on the podcast, and I'm really excited for this discussion, and I'm really grateful that the guys decided that they would come on, first of all, our podcast to discuss this but also just they're very willing to do this discussion and i think it's important and i think it brings us all where we want to be further to the truth and hopefully we're kind of open some new avenues and get some new thoughts on the table here so this discussion is all based around uh, a article that was released by jared mike and also tiago and carl was on this so it was mesocycle progression in hypertrophy volume versus intensity and then there was a letter to the editor by Brian, Jacob Skeppis, and obviously Eric Helms here, um, basically just suggesting an alternative, some critiques or kind of uh, discussion around that article. So within Mike's uh, and Jared and everyone's article initially, I to kind of the takeaway that I took, and Mike, uh, feel free to expand on this, was volume, especially counted in the number of sets, seemed to be determinative of hypertrophy. We tentatively recommend that it be a central variable of progression in a mesocycle designed to optimize muscle growth. So is that a fair? Cool. So then the letter kind of to the editor by our other guys was they had a kind of counter suggestion was an auto-regulated form of double progression, managing volume more so reactively and assessing performance over time. Do you want to add anything to that, Eric? I'm going to let Brian start that off as okay. lead author. And uh, Brian, what would you say our, our, our principal reason for wanting I, to write that letter to the editor is? I think, um, I mean, the suggested, I think our suggested model was was not the, I think there's a number of ways to go about doing this. Um, that was just one example we provided. But I think the, the premise of our argument was, um, you know, progressing up to MRV, you know, may, um, you know, it, it's, it's not necessary. And I, I know they wouldn't disagree with that. Um, but it may actually be suboptimal in some cases. Um, and that it could be disassociated from what's actually optimal from like a physiological, like anabolism perspective. Um, for muscle hypertrophy. So um, that, that I think is probably the, the primary, um, I guess, critique that we had, if we want to kind of yeah. keep it short. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Just, uh, we, we did include another, like, we didn't want to come in and go like, this is dumb. And here's why peace. Yeah. Like, we wanted to, not that we said that, and I don't mean that. But um, I, we didn't just want to provide a critique without saying like, hey, here's what might make sense based on some of the critiques we brought up. And that's why that was there. Um, for my perspective, one of the, one of the reasons I wanted to be involved was there was a couple claims that I felt were uh, counter to the evidence we have and could potentially take some progression models off the table for people. Um, and I also felt that the, the magnitude of the changes represented in the article could be misinterpreted um, or seen as pretty large uh, and, and potentially problematic, depending on how they're implemented. Um, so we were hoping to step in to provide some some context and some uh, critiques of those specific concepts. I think if they're, honestly, a lot of the paper, I have zero issue with at all. And I think that's that's an important thing to bring up. It's there isn't like huge fundamental differences. And like, we don't think, no, intensity should be progressed only and never volume or anything like that. So. Awesome. Yeah, go for it, Mike. I'd like to expand the discussion a little bit to that specific, um, that specific concept, 
that the the sample and it was a sample progression that was given from 10 to 20 sets per week over the courses of a mesocycle was at face value uh maybe too large and i don't want to put words in your guys's mouth but that's sort of the uh my perception of the critique was that you know 10 to 20 is quite a large movement and i think later in talks on uh various other social media uh eric and myself sort of got to the idea that you know 10 to maybe like 16 or something in an auto-regulated style would be quite reasonable maybe 10 to 20 is a bit much and i wanted to bring up a, a specific a uh, line of of um, kind of questioning about how do we catalog that as too much given the state of the literature? I'd like to present something potentially and see what you guys think about it, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Steve, so, as the host, are you good with that? <laughs> I'm sorry, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> Shut down. Eric and Brian are both like, cool. Steve's like, Mike, actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is not where we're going. Yeah. Um, that's okay, Steve? Go for it, Mike. I think this one's right. super. So, um, the ten to twenty progression itself, like we're doubling the total set number over the course of a meso, which can look it looks quite. It's a lot. It's fucking a lot. Not going to debate that. But I think coming at it from another perspective could be interesting. At the top end of the extreme range, we have. Uh, Schoenfeld and Krieger study, which is a replication of the Radielli study, which had groups growing. One group was, I think, 15 sets per week the entire time, started at 15, ended at 15. Another group was, I think, 27 sets, started at 27, ended at 27. The other group was 45 sets, started at 45, ended at 45. I don't want to call that a mesocycle exactly because it's longer, but also with no deloads. It's kind of insane that anyone survives that at all. Uh, but the results of the two studies, I believe, was that the 45-set group got the most hypertrophy, but questionable whether or not it was worth it to go that high. The 27-set group for sure did the best and probably had what we would call the best stimulus-to-fatigue ratio. Um, and then the 15-set one was kind of lagging behind in that respect. And uh, another study that comes up to really high volumes is the Cody Hahn progression study, which I'm uh, all, all told I'm a co-author on that. And that went up to 32 sets, I believe. And they, it's a time course study. So I think at 24 sets, you saw the best gain from 10 to 24. And then like maybe a gain, maybe not. I'm willing to leave that in Lyle McDonald land of whether that was all whatever sarcoplasmic or if it was real muscle, uh, who knows. So using those two studies, and, and sorry, a third point. So taking all the literature together on volume comparisons of hypertrophy, I think it... it in my reading of the literature, our reading, is it would be very difficult to say that 20 sets per, set, uh, per week uh, is, is absolutely beyond the top end of what is productive. As a matter of fact, I think a better reading of the literature is like somewhere between, if I had to put money on it, between in most study designs, the average study design, something between oh, 15 and 25 sets is probably like where, you know, you're getting your best bang for the buck. So... All that being said, what if we took the Radielli study and the Schoenfeld study and added a fourth group, one that started from 22, 22.5, we'll say half of the sets, and worked up to 45 sets? Now, we can't surmise that they would grow uh, more uh, than the 45-set study, maybe, right? but they, they probably wouldn't grow less than the 15-set condition. And maybe they grow pretty similar to the 27, but it's just not doing the same number of sets the entire time. And they would certainly have uh, much less risk of accumulated fatigue and way less risk of upfront injury versus the 45-set start group and the 27-set start group. Because if they're starting at 22 sets, they're just safer and they get less muscle damage and everything at the beginning, only the 15-set group did better than that on, you know, on the, the starting muscle damage and stuff or would have done better, but they're not getting optimal hypertrophy. So we can kind of just throw them aside. And in the Han study, all the way up to 24 sets seemed to cause very robust hypertrophy uh, and, and, and sort of improvements. And then after that, you know, maybe dropped off, maybe didn't, who knows, maybe anywhere from 24 to 32 is junk volume. But so taking that together, if we have a study that is essentially going from 10 to 20 sets 
we have a control group that just does 15 the entire time. Uh, I don't know which one of those two groups wins. I suspect uh, overall it's probably safer to ease in from 10 and go all the way to 20 than just to go right to 15 the entire time. And certainly it's safer, maybe not as hypertrophic, but safer than just starting at 20 because starting at 20, and a lot of studies do this and it seems to correspond with roughly maximum hypertrophy on average. So starting with 20 is great for hypertrophy, but essentially we're not even making the argument that like, okay, so if you go from you know 15 to 17 to 19 to 20, you're in this crazy gray area of like, it's way too much. Like you should have stopped at 15 to us that just gets up to the top limit and everything before is much closer to that minimum effective volume. So in a sense, uh, I, I could phrase this a little bit more for, for the debate style we're doing, whatever discussion. Um, if 10 to 20 is too much of a progression, um, is 22 to 45 then for sure way too much? And then how does one explain that the, tw that the 27 group and the 45 group in their Radiella and Schoenfeld studies actually did better than the group that did less volume? So ours is, it would be even more conservative than that. So, and those groups never shown any signs really of functional reaching, of, of getting on the other end of a U-shaped hypertrophy curve. For sure, they never showed any signs of that with the 27 set condition and probably not, uh, or maybe they got close to that limit with the 45 set. So if we instead said 22 to 45, it seems much more reasonable and much less likely they'd spend most of their time, much more of it on the upward slope of that U-shaped curve. So we think that the 10 to 20 progression pretty much says that you're going to go from 10 sets to 20 sets and probably stop around here. If we went from 10 to 25, from 10 to 30, we could see the other end, but in our understanding, that's just unlikely based on the literature and when volumes are. So we didn't, we picked that 10 to 20 because we think it's representative, but also because 20 is charitably like in most people can survive 20. It seems based on the studies, not just 20, they can survive starting at 20, grinding through 20 and ending at 20 for like 12 weeks. We thought the 10 to 20 within a mesocycle was actually fairly conservative. Um, and, and you guys seem to come from the perspective that it was too aggressive. So maybe we can chat about how those two could potentially gel. So I, I, I understand what you're saying. And um, I actually agree because I, I think the, I have less much of an issue with the idea of the exact numbers of 10 to 20 is I do it being like a 100% increase in volume. Um, in the example. And honestly, that, that critique in particular, um, you know, I, I think in, in your case, you're starting at MEV and working up to MRV. So in a sense, if we're making the argument that 15 would be as good or better potentially, then it's in a sense, it's kind of the same thing in terms of risk, I'd say, because you're spending half of the block performing more than 10 and half of the block performing less than 20. So um, I think if in your case, it 10 to 20, I don't see as being as much of an issue as the 22 to 45 potentially, because I think in... Um, I can't recall what exercises they did in those studies. Um, well, leg extension, leg press. Stuff so like that. yeah, but like I mean, forty-five is—it's a lot. <laughs> you know, I think we would all agree that that's that's a lot of volume. So, um, but they seem know, to think, get results uh, from you, right? They, they did, but they did. Um, but I, I would think also it, point out that the the absolute gains when compared to other studies weren't incredibly impressive. They were impressive when you compare the high volume group to the low volume group, the actual significant. That's where they, I think there was a significant difference versus base factors and effect size differences. Um, they were clustering around the expected gains in the highest volume group. Some of that might have been because they had relatively low rest periods and a ton of volume. So yeah. the, you were basically seeing a trade off of quality for quantity. Um, so that's just some, something to consider within that study design. Yes. If you kind of really take, I, you know, if you're trying to split 45 sets across three full body days, it can't be a good program, but it might be better than doing less, you know, more junk volume is less than less junk volume, I think is, is, is one way I like to probably unfairly strong I, in that, that 
that uh, that program. Go ahead. Yeah, and I guess there's there's no there's no way of knowing that that 45 is at the peak of that U-shaped curve. You know, it, it could be it could be on the you know on the far or on the down slope. You know, maybe 32. What you know, hypothetically, you know, just above 27 would be appropriate there so so i i get i understand like i can concede on that um but then 10 to 20 in the sense that it's you're starting at mev you know if you were starting at mav and then doubling from there it's a different discussion um but uh yeah and, and i don't think that was our our primary our primary critique of the of the paper um it was one of the the more minor ones in my opinion minor yeah. you say <laughs> and if uh, if yeah. i could uh, if i could add to that yeah and, and this is also based on relatively uh weak rationale but it's one of those cases our, our argument against it um it's one of those cases where when we're talking about potentially like injury risk um i if there's weak rationale it should probably still be brought up so right now, for those who aren't aware in the sports science community, there's a big debate around acute chronic workload ratio. And there's actually some, some serious critiques of the validity of the concept and how it's measured. But what there probably isn't a critique of is the idea that if you are adapted to a certain workload and you have some relative increase to it, you may be predisposing yourself to a higher risk. Um, I'll also concede this has only been shown in team sports. We don't really know how to measure it or what the degree is. Um, you know, uh, and we know that, you know, fatigue can impact motor patterns and, you know, when you have contact and all that stuff, it's a whole different animal. But at the very least, I think when someone read the paper and saw that we'd be looking at a, a total volume in terms of tonnage of more than doubling with like the proposed two and a half pound increase, like a slight increase in load to keep pace with the, uh, you know, your strength adaptations, um, or just maybe, you know, pushing RIR a little higher throughout the block and going from 10 to 20 sets, like, well, this, this is a, a more than 100% increase in, in total tonnage. Maybe we should consider that. Um, so it was much more to do with the relative versus uh, absolute change. Um, and I agree with everything else Brian said. So I, I, it's, not a, it's not a huge concern, but it's just I wouldn't want someone to look at that and be like, sweet, I'm going to start with something that's yeah. reasonably challenging. And then by the end of the block, I'll just do twice as much. So, you know? yeah, to, to, to piggyback on that, I yeah, I think the concern was more in the reader's application of this because in the in your original paper and correct me if i'm wrong here but i don't i believe the only you know landmark you discussed was mrv so you, i don't think you had mentioned that 10 was like a minimum effective dose in that case so i think that additional i think that additional context um is important because I think most people probably are starting their blocks above MEV considering, you know, how wide this range actually is. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, you know, outside of that, I think we, we're in agreement. So just to come back to the risk thing, if we have a mesocycle comparison two mesocycles, the same average volume, uh, and the, the, the individual is used to the same average volume coming into both kinds of mesocycles. The average volume is 15 in both over the course of the meso. One is 15 every single week, and the other one starts at 10 and goes to 20 and then deloads. So after a deload at the beginning of the upcoming mesocycle, we can ask the question of what is the acute to chronic workload ratio in that first week? So the sport literature you're referring to, Eric, most of the injuries shown, as far as I'm aware of the, my reading of the literature, is upfront. Like you go from soccer players that are not in shape and you do two a days at the beginning of the season and they fall into pieces. I'm not aware of, uh, to the extent I'm aware of literature, the injury rates for progressively increasing volume slowly, ideally between the four of us in an auto-regulated fashion, which we fully support and have explained, just not in this piece because it was written a year ago. And it was just a concept piece. It was like, here's this idea. We didn't even get into auto-regulation because it would have been like 50 times longer or some shit. So, but if you just very slowly increase volume from something you very easily can handle considerably below your average, 
then what ends up happening is I think there's perhaps a reduction in the risk of that mesocycle versus the mesocycle that just hits you with 15 up front and then you get used to it, hopefully you didn't get hurt, and then it's fine towards the end. We would say that instead of hitting you up front with that 15, you tilt it this way, ease you in at the front end, by the time that you're later in the mesocycle, your technique is better because you've been practicing those exercises and the rep ranges is better, and the volume is now accumulating slowly so that you don't have to have the shock and potentially, and this is something we can get into discussion, you may now benefit from more volume you wouldn't have at the front end. And then you sort of finish on a higher note, deload, and then perhaps repeat another one of those. So the acute to chronic workload ratio stuff, I think to Jared and I points to at least as much credence to the start low and high model versus the go the same the entire time model. Because we have to talk about this in over the mesocycle sets have to be held equal for us to have a a decent conceptual equalization. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's more. So I don't 100% agree with that because you said hit you with 15 at the start. But if the comparison that you're making is one where you're always doing 15, then you're not just hitting them with 15. They're adapted to 15 because they're always doing 15. So beyond that minor point, and maybe there's a deload there that's less, I, I, I don't disagree. And I think gradual increases in volume is, is something we'd all agree on. Uh, qualitatively. Um, I don't know if a 20% increase uh, per, per week is, is that at all. Just an example. Neither. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's what I'm saying. It's there, there is some point where something may not be defined as gradual. I don't think we know what that is. Um, so I don't disagree. I think we're all on the same page that when you do increase volume, it should be in probably a relative graduated way. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I think, um, I think it's just important to point out that um, there's always something that occurred before the mesocycle. So if we kind of constrain just to looking at the mesocycle and we have flat versus, you know, tapered, that can, I think you can look at that in a different way to make either one look, look worse. But you also don't want totally flat because there's also uh, data on monotony and strain uh, that, that is associated with negative things. So I, I think there should be some level of variation progression and some deloads. And I'm a big fan of intro weeks, you know? Um, so, you know, tapering the end and the beginning of, of blocks based on what you're going into and where you came from, I think we're all on the same page. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of the Revive Stronger member site. Inside you'll find a thriving forum, a growing exercise library, presentations, research reviews, and courses. If you want to get involved, sign up via the description. So I guess we're assuming here from, from our perspective is the 10 is right around at minimum effective volume and the 20 is right at maximum recoverable volume or just before it or just after it or something like that. We would never advocate anything else because going much lower or much higher than those two landmarks is literally pointless and backwards. Uh, some combination of totally pointless on the MEV below end and uh, dangerous and stupid and untenable on the MRV plus end. So if we're not, I think it's perfectly fine to do a mesocycle where you don't dip all the way to MEV to start. And it's perfectly fine to end a mesocycle before you hit MRV or get close. But to us, it seems like there are pretty decent arguments, at least to muddle the picture a little bit uh, as to why you wouldn't dip all the way down for example, to MEV to collect it easy, incredibly low risk gains there and have a real good momentum built once you get into your higher volume training. And to us, the big thing about MRV is that it is in some sense, one of the only possible objective with our current knowledge of sports science and measurement of muscle growth and inference. It's one of our only possible objective cutoffs. So we're not so much saying you have to go to MRV. But if you don't know what your MRV is and you may not ever be remotely close to it, that might be a bad thing because you might be shortcutting yourself on volume. And if you go over MRV, which is why we made up the MRV concept to begin with, is because people were going over that shit all the time, then you're almost certainly doing yourself a disservice. So MRV is defined as when you have uh, the plateau of your performance and anything further than that, any more volume would make fatigue so high that you can't match your performance, your performance starts to decline. 
So the decline though is beyond MRV. MRV is at that plateau. Usually we define it and talk about it as a you start get weaker, you're for sure beyond MRV, but we can talk about it in a different way. If you're no longer able to get a little bit stronger week to week, as far as your performance output in your logbook is concerned, if you cannot raise the load and keep the reps the same or raise the reps and keep the load the same week to week, then you're at your MRV because you're at the most you can recover from and you physically can't boost it anymore and get a, a more of an adaptation. You can't get any more, uh, you can't get any better. So we say hitting MRV or getting close to it is a very good metric for when to cut off your mesocycle and deload because anything later would be you literally being, someone's like, how's your training? And you're like, great, I'm getting weaker every week. They're like, okay, what? You're like, yeah, that's my MRV four weeks ago. Fuck it, bro. You know what I'm saying? Muscle growth. That makes no fucking sense. But if you cut off earlier, which is totally fine and potentially tenable, you have to defend against this. Someone asking you, how's your training going? You're like, it's great. Hitting PRs, everything, get a little stronger every week. One more rep here, a little bit more load. And like, cool. What are you doing next week? You're like, fucking deloading, bro. It's time to shut it down. They're like, why aren't you doing another week? You could just be getting a little bit stronger. And you're like, man, it's just safe, better safe than sorry, which is fine. But isn't quite as straightforward as, well, actually, I'm just going to keep staying in the game until I can't eke out any more progress and right around there is my MRV and then I shut it down. So that don't go all the way up to MRV is another way of saying cut the mesocycle when you're still getting a little bit stronger every week, which unless you've got crazy soreness or crazy muscle damage uh, and your systemic fatigue is somehow super high and there's other correlates we could draw, and even still, if your performance is still going up, it's tough for me from a coaching angle to say, dude, science says you should for sure shut it down. If an athlete came to me and said, look, I'm still hitting little mini PR, should I keep going? I'm tempted to at least cut them some slack and saying, I could understand how you could say yes. And it would be very difficult for me to definitively say, no, bro, you got to shut it down. So that's where we sort of have trouble with the MRV side of things of like, well, it's better to just stop early. How early? How do you know that? And how are you going to deny those gains that are still coming? So I'll say I think one the, thing, I'll, then I'll let you go, ahead. Brian. So just, yep. just to be real clear, in our article, just so that we, we I'm happy to have this discussion, but just so in the article, we're aware that MEV wasn't discussed. And that example was just about going to MRV. And like Brian said, I think with some of that context, probably wouldn't have been something we brought up in the article. So we didn't want to write the article with the assumption that the reader had read you know, RP stuff or listen to uh, a podcast, we just had to respond to what was in that article. But just just to re reiterate that point from Brian, but go ahead, Brian. So you had said, you know, if, if you're going to make the argument against MRV, you have to have the defense or defend or have an explanation for the question of why not keep going if performance is improving. And, you know, unless there's connective tissue or psychological wear and tear, you know, I think um, that's, that's a valid point. But I think one of the fundamental aspects of our argument is if you are improving, then it's likely that an overload stimulus is in place with existing levels of volume. So I agree, why not keep pushing the block if you're feeling good? But why does that require you to go up to MRV? If you're making great progress, shouldn't you just, I mean, you could be at, you know, that 15 sets in our example and just ride that out until you see performance start to take a downturn and then you could deload. Um, and so I, I think that's, that would be my argument against pushing, you know, potentially past the point where you're getting optimal progress. So um, you would hit MRV either way. Uh, MRV is defined as no longer being able to make performance gains. You would just hit it a few weeks later. Your cumulative fatigue would bring your MRV down to you instead of you rising up to it. So you could do like 20 sets next week, or you could do like 16 sets in two weeks. Either way, you hit MRV. So it's, it's unavoidable to hit MRV. In order to not hit MRV, you would have to say like, I'm, I'm still going to be improving, but I'm shutting it down and I'm leaving. However, you bring up an excellent point, the decision to whether or not to add sets. For us, we do not recommend set additions with the goal of eventually hitting your MRV. That shit happens anyway, even if you don't add sets. It just happens later. 
the algorithm we use, and this is absolutely not in our article, but you guys brought up auto-regulation in response in your article, and we would like to address our views on that, which are almost very, very close to you guys. We just a little bit uh, use a couple more indicators, uh, which will, maybe it's very interesting to talk about. So this was not in our article. Ideally, uh, progression of deciding, okay, week one versus two or week three versus four, do I add sets? For us, it is really sort of decided by mostly two factors, but really sort of three. First of all, are we getting stronger over time, which is good. If not, then definitely don't add sets because some shit is really going on. The second one is, are you getting overlapping soreness? Okay, we're not prepared to defend the idea that if you train legs twice a week, Monday and Thursday, that if your quads are still sore Thursday, and then on next Monday, still sore physically to the touch and when moving, that you should raise your volume. Damas et al. and all the related literature is fucking insane. If you're getting that much soreness, it's a very good chance. You're probably growing, but at a much more increased risk of injury and probably not optimally. We'd like to at least heal from soreness before going again. So if you aren't healing from soreness before your next session, don't add volume. If you are healing, maybe add volume. And then we come back to another one, which is more subjective, the pump. Right. So the muscle pump uh, is something that if you're getting robust pumps, then there's physiological rationale for why that's hypertrophic. But also it probably indicates that you're doing a good enough job disrupting the muscle and fatiguing the muscle that you're getting a robust amount of growth. Our concern is this. If you're set on a certain number of sets, and I'm not saying you guys are just a hypothetical. If you're set on doing this number of sets and you're getting stronger, which is definitely good. Right. But you could be getting stronger from a lot of neurological adaptations, which is awesome, right? But then it's not exactly hypertrophy, but here's the scenario. You're getting stronger, but after three or four weeks, you're getting very few, very little of a pump. You're just not getting much of a pump and you're getting almost no soreness or barely any soreness at all, or, or just literally no soreness. So everything tells us that like, okay, if we had to guess where you are in your volume landmarks, you're probably not at MRV or anywhere close to where your maximum volume you can do. And on that scale of hypertrophy, forget anything in MRV, just the range everyone has of effective volumes, it's just probably not true that you're at that high end of the range of like, oh, that's a lot of volume. You're not even getting a pump. You're not even getting sore. I mean, think about the pumps and soreness the guys in the 45 set study were getting. Holy fucking shit. They're probably just dead the entire they time. They, did, they didn't measure soreness or pumps in, in sure. that study. And they so, don't measure sure. this in studies. No, no, for sure. So just from a real world perspective, if you're willing, I'll be more direct. If you're willing to have a lifter who is in a hypertrophy phase, but is getting uh, no longer getting very good pumps uh, because they've adapted to the training in some respect, they're no longer getting any remote soreness that overlaps with anything. And you're, and they started at a lower volume because this seems reasonable and that's where we're coming from then not increasing their volume a little bit to get them some pumps and maybe get them a little bit more disruption seems to us uh, that we wouldn't be comfortable as coaches doing that. I can't tell a client, look, hey, how's training going there? I'm getting stronger. I'm like, sweet, rock on. How are your pumps? How are your soreness? They're like, I don't feel a fucking thing. Like, yeah, man, you're growing a ton of muscle. I'm not prepared to say that because of the physiological relevance of pumps. Uh, because of the fact that if you're hardly doing any muscle damages, highly unlikely you're pushing yourself anywhere remotely close to your max. And because you can get stronger for a long time without doing much hypertrophy whatsoever. And then they're in a position where you're using one objective metric for their hypertrophy, which is strength increase. They're doing great. They're getting strong all the time. You get a DEXA six months later, like turns out it was all neural, bro. Sorry. And then you look at the literature and you see that strength gains are exactly the same at like two-thirds the volume of best hypertrophy gains, same strength gains for both. One group just grows more, and this is multiple studies. You probably, I'm not prepared, Jared's not prepared to say if you're not getting any pumps and you're not getting any soreness at all, that you shouldn't add one or two sets here and there. That's it. What if Man. the... Where, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> six, six claims that, 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 I, that I had to take issue with there. Go um, ahead, Eric. So I think, I think maybe we should try to keep the one topic at a time. Um, because there are many layered issues there, I would see. So for one, uh, soreness, there's actually a study by Nosaka, is positively correlated with force production. Um, this is a, an interesting thing where, where, where soreness, because it's delayed, tends to actually follow maybe the repair process or the inflammatory process after damage. So it's probably, it occurs because damage happens. So I'm not going to say they're divorced 
or that it's not relevant at all. Soreness, it has the highest correlation I've seen as like a 0.3 R score with indirect measures of, of, of muscle damage. And ironically, it's positively cor correlated with force production. And that's the strongest of all these weak measurements in this Nosaka study. I think the title is ironically, uh, soreness does not reflect muscle damage or something like that. Really Im important study for this topic. Um, it does tell you that there was some damage, um, you know, and I would agree that if you're getting tremendously sore, you probably don't need to be adding volume. But the time course of that soreness is, is potentially problematic and not necessarily just related to volume. There's a study by Gomez that came out in 2018 where two groups did the same exact amount of volume and they rated their subjective soreness. And these were relatively intermediate lifters, especially as the literature is concerned. And one group had like a zero out of 10 score on average for like eight of their soreness metrics, while the other group, and both of them kept volume flat, maintained a level of soreness of like five out of 10 on average the whole time. And they were growing the same. So what I think the there's some serious, say again? What was the difference between groups? Frequency. So one group was doing full body five times a week and one was doing a body part split. So sure. I would say, yeah, you're, it's just placing the volume differently. But again, the hypertrophy is not significantly different and the means weren't that different either when you're looking at it. So I have, I think there's, there's a limited and specific context and maybe within subject or participant or athlete where, where soreness could be useful. But we need to be careful about making those kind of claims. Like in your guys' rebuttal article, you said studies show, and I'm paraphrasing, that the pumps, soreness, gains, and weakness are ubiquitous in, in, in untrained lifters. But we don't even measure soreness in untrained yeah, lifters. But, like but, I had but, to... they are. but they are, and you and I know that they are because we've actually done the research. Untrained lifters get super fucked up from high volumes in a sense that they usually use exercise as a model for muscle damage and dysfunction. And that the study you cited where soreness is actually correlated to, uh, to strength positively is conjured by, I don't even know how many studies of the people that get the most fucked up see a huge drop in force production that corresponds with massive soreness. Soreness to the point where it's difficult to stand up. And we know beginners experience, if we're not willing to admit that beginners experience more soreness from a given volume than more advanced people, uh, we just have to chalk I'm it not up. saying that. I'm, okay. I'm not saying that. I'm just what saying we need to be really careful when we say things like studies show that pumps and soreness are ubiquitous. Or, I or never say make... ubiquitous. I don't use that word. So what did I, I don't know what I really said. What, what, what are, uh, what was... I'll, I'll give you the quote. Um, in most studies on beginners, pumps, weakness, and soreness are nearly ubiquitous. Yeah, I'm very comfortable with that claim. So, but that's, I mean, when you say in most studies, that makes me think, oh, this is based on studies. Maybe that's an unreasonable interpretation of that, but there's very few studies that measure pumps, if any, and they don't normally correlate or measure pumps and soreness at the same time. It's difficult to find studies where they, they look at soreness and gains and weakness. So that's, that's just the kind of thing where I think when we're, if we're going to go like in a podcast format, especially, and we're trying to, you know, educate the listener and make sure they're clear, we just need to be a little more careful. Um, so now on to the, I never, I never claimed that it was in the same study that these things were found. It is just understood through conducting lots of studies that beginners tend to experience pretty significant pumps. Beginners tend to experience very significant soreness and they experience post-exercise weakness that usually lasts longer than it does for intermediate and advanced. That's all coming from separate parts of literature, separate studies, but that as a statement does not, is not intended to say every study that studies all three, at the, I'm not even aware of a study that studies all three at the same time. But if you take all the information together, which is to do synthesis is like, yeah, beginners, you know, if a beginner tells you, hey, I got super crazy pumped from doing just one set of squats, I'm sore three days later, and I'm like weaker, I have trouble getting off the bathroom, you're not going to be like, oh, shit, you did something wrong. You're going to be like, fucking day one, bro, easy. Everyone kind of knows that's what you get. Whereas if a person says that, you're like, oh, you probably overdid it. No, I, I don't disagree with that. I think, I think using these as proxies, though, definitively, may have some issues. That, 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 that's I'm what I'm getting. We're just doing our best. I wouldn't say definitively. Sure. It's our best guess. Ignoring them completely, I'd say, is uh, maybe requires defending. But if you're, uh, for example, if your athlete says, I'm the following level of sore, and you're like, that doesn't mean anything. Science says it doesn't matter. You could just be getting stronger. Or they say, I have no pumps. 
should I do more volume? Like pump doesn't mean shit. It doesn't mean anything. Don't worry about it. Just keep getting stronger. You could be operating a strength program. Another sort of real world thing is if you look at a program designed for strength versus one designed for hypertrophy, sometimes the strength for reps similarly increases. But from our real world interaction with lifting weights, we know that strength programs sets of three to six don't really cause robust pumps very much. They don't cause a whole lot of soreness, not as much as hypertrophy programs. So to us, pumps and soreness are the thing that splits hypertrophy from strength programs and maybe is somewhat uh, indicative potentially of some insight we can take about muscle growth itself. Maybe. And I, I think, I think where, where I'm coming at it from is because we're using pumps and soreness to tell us about volume right? That's, that's, that's the whole concept here. It's supposed to tell us something about when we get to, to MRV or what's an appropriate volume. I would probably guess that MRV and at least maybe soreness have some relationship because one of the bottlenecks will be when you cause a lot of muscle damage and whether it, the time course is the, the repair or the damage itself or the biochemical cascade um, doesn't really matter because it should be somewhat reflective. Like there was a correlation, positive or negative. So I agree. You cause damage. There's going to be soreness at some point. Whether you're stronger when you're sore or not doesn't really matter, and it probably does have a relationship with MRV. But MRV shouldn't be seen as a placeholder for MAV. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is that we just need to be very careful when we're using these proxies to prescribe volume as manipulating things other than volume while still doing a hypertrophy program can change those substantially, like Gomez found, going from a, a, like a five-fold difference in soreness in two groups doing the same volume over a mesocycle. So I just think that's that's something to be to be aware of. And then as far as pumps, there's also other studies. One that just came out by Tarada and colleagues. One of the few studies that actually measure something that could be similar to a pump, uh, where they 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 measured the the post-exercise swelling, and they found no significant difference in groups despite the fact that the low rep sorry, the high rep, low load group to failure had more pump than the low load, high rep group that was near to failure or the heavy load, 80% more common training metric. They had the most pumps, the most post-exercise swelling, but there was no significant difference in gains between groups pretty similar. And when you did a correlation between post-exercise swelling and hypertrophy, there was no correlation. So I think Maybe these could be used in a within subject design if we had multiple data points. Perhaps it could tell you something, but there's many ways to not manipulate volume as there wasn't any difference in volume between those two uh, low load high rep groups. You can manipulate frequency, you can manipulate approximate to failure, you can manipulate rest period and get a similar hypertrophy stimulus, but wildly different pumps and, and soreness. So I think that's just something for people to be aware of. And I think we've talked about this on another podcast. If you keep a lot of other variables the same and use within subject design, maybe. So I'm not saying take them off the table. I'm not the, the straw man argument of science says these things are, are useless. But I think if we're, we can't conflate MRV with MAV and we can't conflate metrics that might tell us about one that might tell us about the other, I don't know that uh, pumps or soreness tell us about what's the best volume for you to grow. I do think soreness can tell us about what's probably too much. And that's about as far as I'm comfortable taking it based on data that's contrary to the other so, Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. That's literally the only thing we say about soreness is if you have overlapping soreness, we're betting it's too much. And that actually applies to any frequency model, any exercise selection, anything. So you said that we need to be careful about this. The care is inherently built into the algorithm. Because if we say, look, don't train when you're super fucking sore, certainly don't add volume when you're super sore week to week to week overlapping. I think that applies to every single condition because high frequency trainees don't really run into a whole lot of DOMS and thus it's automatically just not a problem for them. On the pump side, high frequency training does produce a pump although smaller one because each session is less of a pump. But if you measure pump area under the curve or something like that, just as a concept, they get the same amount of pump over the course of the week because they train more, but the pump each time is a little less. We're actually willing to make another, like a little bit more of a tangential claim, which is just interesting for viewers to think about. 
if you're in a situation where you're in the gym and your pump has peaked for a muscle group and you continue to train it until it starts to decline, you're probably doing too much and it's probably going to trash you and it's probably too much volume. But that's just something for some for folks to consider. But with the pump, we're using it as just a one dimensional variable, just like soreness goes in the top dimension. This goes below and says, look, if you're getting no pump at all or barely any pump, then it is perhaps a good idea for you to add volume. And in our context of how we're talking about this, if we're starting at an MEV-ish volume that we already know isn't the most they can handle, and if they're clearly not getting robust pumps, then there's not really much of a downside until they hit too much soreness. So this entire time, the performance is increasing slowly but surely, and they're staying in that middle range between what is a decent pump, pretty good pump, as good of a pump as you can get, with Sorna still healing on time for their next session, no matter what that is. If in our, in our concept is there's that little middle ground and we're manipulating sets per week to stay in that middle ground because it might be three sets got you a pretty great pump and, and you know, almost too much soreness in week one, but in week six, it's getting you almost no pump and no soreness at all. And we already know like three sets per session based on, for example, James Krieger's review of the literature, that's at the bottom end of hypertrophy responses for most people per week, you know, or per session, you know, eight seems to be the average uh, optimum over the course of a program and short time even above that might be great. So then say, okay, with the bottom end of this range of hypertrophy, three sets per session, we're no longer getting sore and we're definitely uh, barely getting any pumps. Should we increase the volume? We don't think that you should wait an entire mesocycle to find out. I think it just go up. Uh, so, so that's kind of how we view things to keep them in that margin. So if someone's no longer getting any pumps at all and any soreness, we think we maybe add one or two sets or something like that per week and see how it goes. But if someone's getting fucking filthy pumps just out of their mind shit and they're getting super fucking sore, they can barely recover, we would say, dude, adding sets is a fucking not a good idea in most cases, just hang in there and milk out the great training and then your progression comes exclusively from loader reps and you're in a really good zone. So for us, they're more like indicators of when you may for sure just be doing not enough or more for sure be doing way too much. That middle range, there's a ton of nuance there. We just want to point folks into that middle range using what we know so far as if you're getting no pumps at all, I, I'm not going to roll the dice and say you're getting your best results. Uh, especially, especially given in the context of how much objective volume you're doing. Because we have enough studies now, we know like, oh, anywhere between like three and maybe 12 sets per session seems optimal. And anything much beyond 12 is just not very sustainable. Anything lower than three probably doesn't get you better hypertrophy than that four or five or six sets. If we start someone in that three to five range, and after a few weeks, they're no longer getting really good pumps, and they're, they're recovering way on time soreness-wise, well, you know, you can add a few sets, and I don't think that's the end of the world. And I, th I think that's a better idea than just sitting there and be like, why would we add a few sets? Because there are three things now. You're recovered enough soreness-wise. Your pumps could be better. And also, it's just one of those situations where you're, uh, you know, you're performing and you're making gains and you know that you're on the low end of the sets that usually correlate on a population average to best hypertrophy. So, like, and all the signs are like, yeah, adding more volume is probably a good idea based on all three of these pumps, soreness, and your relationship to the average population. If that's the case, you should go up in, in, in sets uh, by a little bit. And there's no, the, it's not so much that we should say you should go up, but the opinion of you should definitely just stay to us leaves more wanting than the opinion of you should probably add a couple of sets. So if, if performance is improving, and let, let's, let's remove like the scale element, like the neurological component. And um, you know, let's say somebody's been doing squats or let's actually use an isolation movement something that's super low skill like a bicep curl or a leg extension say they've been training it in the same rep range for three blocks so they're well adapted to this and they're seeing increases in performance week to week within the mesocycle in the presence of accumulated fatigue so like the fitness and fatigue dynamics were actually supportive of this argument if they're in the presence of fatigue, making this progress, and I guess your your argument was that, um, or you know, the the observation that force production in you know with extreme soreness is is lower, isn't the fact that they're making good progress in the presence of fatigue and in the absence of excessive soreness. What else would you attribute those 
those gains to. I mean, I'm not saying there's no neurological element there at all, but I'm saying in an advanced lifter, I think any progress on a week to week basis is, is pretty damn good, you know, especially if you're staying healthy. So if you're seeing that and you're sort of, it, it to me, it, it kind of feels like it's, it's ignoring the performance increase if it's occurring and it's sort of putting the, the soreness in the pump, which appear not to have much direct, like mechanistically cellular swelling. It makes sense how that can, can play a role, but the study that Eric mentioned, the uh, Tirada study from this year that found no predictive aspects for the pump, you know, post-exercise with future gains. It, it seems like you're kind of leveraging these two variables that don't have much direct support with the actual outcome that we're concerned with and putting them above performance increases over time that probably do. Um, How are we putting them above performance increases? Because performance increases are occurring in your example. You said if performance increases are occurring and you're not getting sore, and you say uh, you a little while back, you had said, you know, we're really only using soreness to establish what's too much. Um, and then I think you had said like, or, you know, if you're it's a sign that you're recovering well enough that you could do more. But if that's the case, but you're still progressing, then isn't that sort of prioritizing the lack of soreness above the fact that you're making progress? Why is it above the fact that we're making progress? Because you're still adding volume even if you're, you're making progress. Because adding volume could cause more progress. It could also cause less though. It could, well, it could cause less. Totally. And then you deload it. So therefore, soreness but is the more important predictor. But so like, that's... It's not, not the most important. So, so if, you, if you experiment by increasing volume and you get, uh, so there's a couple layers to this. If you increase volume and it ends up hampering your performance, uh, then you can say, okay, I know now that this is too much volume to keep my performance going in the next run I do with this mesocycle. I'm not going to do that anymore. What can happen, and there's tons of literature supporting this, is when you take folks that are training with a certain volume, raising their volume on average results in more muscle gains. I know there are exceptions to that and is individually different, but most hard gainers, more than not, actually experience better gains with more volume. So, so that's a thing, first of all. Second of all, uh, as illustrated earlier in multiple studies and sort of in this discussion, you can get the same strength increases with one group getting more hypertrophy than the other. We don't want to just necessarily only follow strength increases because I'll tell you how you can increase strength even more. You do the next week with less volume. Fatigue falls off. Fitness is skyrocketing. Your fucking preparedness is amazing. You're like, oh, I fucking figured it out. Sets of five, two sets of five. I'm fucking getting so jacked, but you're not. You're getting stronger for a bunch of fitness fatigue and neural reasons. Third point is that neural adaptations are very likely occur for years. Olympic weightlifters spend a long time not getting visibly bigger, even move down a class, and they get stronger over time. Yes, it's a complex technical movement, but we don't have any good reason to believe that neural adaptations simply stop occurring even after several mesocycles, even on a leg extension. There is a technical element, there's a psychological element, there's a recruitment element there that could be playing a role. So we can't be too sure that all of our week to week to week increases directly reflect hypertrophy. And if they do, that's awesome. But doing a little bit more volume might cause even more hypertrophy. And a lot of times when you add volume, you don't get any increase in strength. You may actually get a temporarily temporary reduction in strength because the fatigue goes up, but the underlying fitness characteristics are expanding faster. Once you deal with a big fatigue down, you're in a place where you're actually more muscular than you were before. But that's not for sure. We just, just want to make, make certain we're making this clear. Performance is absolutely a super important metric. 100, and you never want to do anything that for sure fucks your performance. You never want to be in a position to say the following. Yeah, I'm like mesocycle over mesocycle. I haven't been getting much stronger, but the pumps are fucking crazy, bro. That's nonsense. Meso to meso to meso, especially when fitness and fatigue have cleared the table, you want to be getting stronger for reps. But our hypothesis is that training that gets you similar levels of strength, maybe even a little bit less strength within the mesocycle, not between, probably causes a bit more hypertrophy than training that gets you similar levels of strength, but is of a lower volume and probably doesn't cause as much of a pump 
or as much uh, soreness and so on and so forth. So I don't think we're, uh, I think we're saying that progression in load is very good and very important. When you stop progressing in load, it's definitely time to deload, but there's an upside there where if you raise your volume gingerly, then you may be getting yourself into a similar progression in strength or even maybe a little bit lower one, but more hypertrophy. And, and in, in that sense, we think it's worth getting the volume up a little bit if those other things say it. Now, on the other hand, if you're training in a way that your pumps are great, your soreness is healing on time, and your strength is going up week to week, don't fuck with that. You're fucking golden. Don't, don't go up. And a lot, you know, a lot of folks think you do proactive ad sets. So one thing about the pump before I, I lose this thought. If someone's not getting a pump whatsoever at an existing amount of session volume, because ultimately that's kind of what it comes down to. So say you're doing six sets a session, you're not getting any pump. And then say you increase to seven or eight. I guess anecdotally, you know, if we're leaning on anecdote, it, it seems if I'm not receiving any pump from six sets, Going to eight, like usually doesn't, in my experience anyway, and may, maybe it's been different for, for you, it, it's, it's usually a sign that I'm getting better at tolerating that volume and I'm getting better at clearing like metabolites. And if I'm adding more volume on top of that, like I, I don't see how eight sets radically, you know, that, that small of an increase would take me from no pump to a robust pump that's, you know, telling me things are heading in the right direction, but, um, it and, would and increase I think, the magnitude of your pump. Probably doing more volume probably gets you a better pump within a session. I, I, I would honestly guess that just resting less will get you a better yeah. pump, which we know will probably produce less hypertrophy. I think, that um, only produces less hypertrophy if it takes away the total mechanical tension you're imposing. But if you equate the mechanical Probably tension, would if your pump went up, because that means that they're, you're experiencing a little more metabolic fatigue and stress and you're under, you're under resting. Yeah. But if you do the same total number of repetitions close to failure at the same, as you were, it may take you more sets now because you're resting less long, but then it probably would result in more hypertrophy because your number of effective reps or whatever goes up because you're pushing it close to failure more often. So if we keep tension the same, Chasing the pump by itself is a stupid fucking idea, 100%. Chasing the pump in context of we're still increasing rep strength and we're never fucking ourselves over, which is why the set addition thing is the way we're talking about it. Set addition to increase pump makes some sense as it's just more stimulus, right? And maybe too much, maybe too much, right? But just more. Increasing the pump by saying, okay, we're going to fucking toss mechanical overload. Tension's gone. You do just drop sets. For sure. Terrible idea, Eric. Definitely not what we're saying. But I'm saying this, you know, at six to eight, you should see a marginal increase in how big of a pump you get more realistically, because we mostly add sets on the front end and then coast towards the end in our in our experience. If you're doing three sets of leg curls and you're no longer getting a good pump, doing like four or five sets of leg curls gives you a better pump and probably more hypertrophy. So, you know, from six to eight, if that's a fucking lot of sets already, we rarely ever do that many sets ourselves for a single exercise. And and then it's like, ah, fuck, man, maybe just really fatigued. And your performance is probably plateauing anyway. So, uh, so I'm not sure how long you can keep that up. I, I think the the point I was making, like I don't dispute that the pump correlates with volume in in general. I'm saying if you're adapted to a level of volume and not experiencing any pump, is adding even one set per session going to cause a pump all of a sudden? And and I, I guess I'm just saying in my experience, based off of my observation you know, in the time I've spent training, those small, if I'm not getting a pump, it's usually because I've been training in a rep range for a good period of time and I've gotten efficient at training in that rep range. Um, you know, adding more doesn't seem to, to help that much. Um, and it was more just a side tangent mentioning that. Um, so, yeah. I don't know if it'd be interesting just to butt in here um, to talk about whether or not it's the manipulation. Really, rather you didn't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I normally don't say anything in these discussions, so um, there was a, there was a little bit of a gap. So I I just was thinking this through, and I wonder if I don't know if this 
because it wasn't I don't think particularly mentioned as a variable that you change within the article but I think in general there is something and people know that this is something that you vary Mike is whether the the kind of change of reps and reserve takes a role and has a role in kind of all of these different kind of variables that we're moving So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We cap them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.